part of the conversations that Jesus has um, are private. Part of them are a little bit more public. But Jesus ends up being pretty misunderstood pretty often. I, uh, several, I think this was about two years ago. I, I, I use, um, I use um, my cell phone a lot in the car, like I, the hands-free whole thing. I, I like to not pick up. You know when you're driving and you see people own the phone, or maybe you are that person that's on your phone, and I, I often, I have, to, I, have to, I have to ask for the patience of Jesus because I want to beat my horn and act like you're about to get in a wreck, so that like if you're on your phone, you're like, so that you would do that. I, I think that would be funny, but I, I'll see people on their phone, so I try not to be the person that's on their phone, and so I always talk to the Google. I know I'm one of the rare people in the room. How, how many of you are Android people in the room? Are there just a few of us? All right, so like I thought, like, like five to ten percent of us, um, I just want to say this. Hey, Siri, power off. I'm just going to see if that's going to work. I'm just curious if that works for anybody because I am about to tell you what I normally do. So I'm driving down the road, and I will say when, I'm a, when I want to call somebody, I will say, hey, Google, that's going to get a few of you. Sorry about that. Uh, but I think it's funny. I left my phone in the office, so I get to do it, and it doesn't matter. But I'll say, hey, Google, call so-and-so. And, and, or I'll say, hey, Google. The, Google has gotten so smart. Google, you can ask the Google. And you, I'll just be driving down the road, and we'll be having a conversation, and, uh, and someone will say something just, just so arbitrary and so random, and I'll just ask the Google whatever they, like, we'll be talking about, hey, cucumbers, and, 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 and I'll just be like, hey, Google, when's the best time to grow cucumbers? And the Google will respond, like right there in the car, just talk back to me. So one day, I was going to call Jay, and I said on the phone, I said, hey, Google, call Jay West. And the phone rang, like it always does, because this is how I call Jay West, your pastor, all of the time. And uh, I said, hey, Google, call Jay West. And the phone rings, and uh, I hear on the other end of the line a female voice, which I thought was kind of odd. And uh, she says, you've reached, this is Jay West, how may I help you? And I said, ha, 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 that's funny, can I please speak with Jay? And she said, there's no one here by that name. To which I thought, okay. Jay is, this isn't like Jay, he normally isn't going to play games like this, but maybe somebody, like I'm a youth pastor, and maybe one of my teenagers has come by the church or something, and he handed them the phone, and they answered it, and I say, uh, who, who is this I'm talking to? And she says, hey, my name's Brenda. And I said, oh, well, hey, Brenda, uh, can I please speak with Jay? And she says, there's no one here by that name. And I said, I've, um, I've, but I called Jay West. She goes, that's right, you called Jay West. And I went, okay, then I sp can I speak with Jay? She says, there's nobody here by that name. I said, Brent, I'm having a hard time with this. I don't understand what you're saying. And, and she, says, she says, how can I help you, sir? And you, I can tell she's getting irritated, and I'm just confused. And I said, can I please speak with Jay West? She says, there's no one here by that name. I said, I thought I called Jay West. She says, you did. And I said, uh, well, then can I speak with him? Sir, there's no one here by that name. What's your name again? Brenda. Brenda. Can I please speak with Jay? Because I, I told the Google to call Jay West, and it called Jay West, and then you answered, and she goes, that's right. And I said, I don't understand. It feels like the Abbott and Costello routine, who's on first, and what's on, and we're going back and forth. And it takes me about 60 seconds until finally I say to Brenda, Brenda, I, I'm from um, Alabama, and I'm just apparently being slow right now. I'm going to explain to you what happened and you can help me understand what this conversation is and what we're doing right now. I said, so I told the Google, I said, Google called Jay West, to which the phone rang, and you picked up the phone and said, this is Jay West. Help me. She said, sir, 
you have called J. West Bridal Boutique in New York City, New York, and my name is Brenda. And I went, Brenda, that explains so much. And then as the courteous, polite Alabamian I am, I decide I'm going to tell her what just happened. And I said, so Brenda, what I was doing is I have a brother-in-law and his name is Jay West. And so when I said, I would like for you to call Jay, I do it all of the time. And, and then she's just gone. She hung up on me. <clears throat> but I think that a lot of times these were the conversations that Jesus was having. He was having these conversations where he would say one thing and someone would hear something else constantly back and forth with these conversations. There's one time that, um, that James and John come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, they say, when you enter your glory, could we sit on your right and your left? Now, glory to James and John mean one day we're going to fight we're going to have a revolution. We're going to free Israel from slavery and captivity, and we're going to reign, and we believe that you're the Messiah, and the person that's going to lead us is going to be the king, and when you're the king, we want to sit on your right and your left when you sit on your throne. That's what James and John thinks glory means, but Jesus thinks glory means the cross. So James and John say, Jesus, when you enter your glory, they think the throne Jesus thinks the cross. When you enter your glory, can we be on your right and your left? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you've just asked. And they say, well, we'd like to sit on your right and your left. And Jesus was, as a matter of fact, someone is going to be on my right and my left. Remember the cross. They're thinking glory, the throne. So he's constantly having these back and forth and these just confusing conversations with people. And so today I want to look at a confusing conversation that Jesus had with Martha and Mary on uh, four days after their brother Lazarus had died. So I want to give you a little bit of backstory. Basically, this is about somewhere, we're not 100% sure, but this is somewhere between two, four, five, six weeks before Jesus is going to die, before he's going to be crucified. And Jesus is staying outside of Jerusalem very purposefully because he knows that there is a conspiracy to arrest him and then to potentially kill him. He knows that he's going to die. He is telling his disciples over and over and over. Mark alone lists three stories in chapter 8, in chapter 9, and in chapter 10 where Jesus tells his disciples he's going to die. Peter even pulls Jesus off to the side one day and says, Jesus you got to stop telling the other guys you're going to die. It's confusing them. It's making them sad. They don't know what, and that's when Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. So, there, so always these conversations, and Jesus is trying to say one thing, and people are hearing another. So Jesus is staying in Jerusalem because he knows if he goes into Jerusalem, he will probably be arrested. So he's staying, and it's, it's not his time yet. Well, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus, their brother, is very sick. He's deathly sick. And he is in the city of Bethany, which is right next door to Jerusalem. And Jesus decides, I'm not going to go right now. Jesus waits two more days and then makes his trip to uh, Bethany, where he will see that Lazarus has already been dead for four days. Which, if you do the math, John is very clear to tell us that Lazarus had died pretty much the moment that the, the group came to tell Jesus that he was sick. So, 
That's where we pick up in our story in John chapter 11, verse 17. And on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead or had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha is grieving. Her brother has died. And she is in the process, beginning the very process of grief, which is something that we don't do very well in America. We're not good at grieving because Americans have a deep aversion to pain. We will do whatever it takes to avoid pain at all costs. And in this culture, Lazarus's body, what would have happened is, is they would have prepared the body, they would have sat with the body, they would have put the body in the tomb, they would have sealed the tomb, they would have waited for about a year, they would have opened the tomb, gone in, taken the bones that had, the whole body would have decomposed, they would take the bones, put it in a box, bury Lazarus's bones, and then have the tomb ready for another person to be put in there to uh, decompose. And this is a process thousands of years old, this grieving process that many, many, many cultures have and many, many cultures participate in. And in America, we are no exception because we have to go through death and grief. We just do our very best to avoid it. So several years ago, when I say several years ago, it's like 50 years ago, my kids will be like, I'll be like, the other day. And they'll say, when was this the other day? And I'll be like, it's five years ago. It's five years. But several years ago, uh, there was some uh, human psychological development studies done, and there was a lady who came up with this idea of the grieving process. And you've probably heard it before. It's called DABDA. Have you all ever seen DABDA, the grieving process? Anybody know what I'm talking about? But it goes like this. I, I put it on the board for you. It's, it's, uh, the process is denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Now, a couple thoughts about this, and then I want to I I spend a little bit of time uh, in, in the bargaining space. But basically, a couple thoughts. One is, is this is the process of grieving. So let me tell you what grief is. Grief is the experience that we have after we have experienced loss. It is the emotion that we have. It is the process that we go through when you and I experience loss. Whether we've lost someone that we love, whether we've lost an opportunity that we could have participated in, whether we've moved away from a city into a brand new city and we lost that city. Maybe we've graduated. Maybe your children have left home and you become an empty nester. The experience of loss. And this is the process we all go through. And I just want to tell you, this is something that I've learned the hard way. Grief always wins. You can cooperate with grief or you can fight against grief, but you are going to grieve. You can grieve well you can grieve well and work out through your loss and try not to hurt the people around you and hurt yourselves, or, or, or you can grieve really unwell and hurt people around you and hurt yourself. But you are going to grieve loss. And so this process, it, it doesn't exactly follow this order all of the time. Sometimes you start with a different place. Sometimes you bounce around. It's called cycling. Sometimes you'll go through a few different places. And the other thought is this, is the grieving process doesn't exactly end. It's not a perfect end. Take it from someone who was married for 20 years and my wife passed away four years ago. There are things that happen in my life. I have grieved and yet often loss will just 
just present itself in the most random of ways. And so grief doesn't always just end, but the basic process. So you go through. So for instance, denial. You guys know denial. The, the basic idea of denial is um, it's when we say, this didn't happen. No, this didn't happen. I was so sad. I'm, a, I'm just a, look, I, I grew up in the 90s. I'm a 90s. I, I get to say I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. Not everybody gets to say that. I do, which means I get two different types of rock and roll. I love rock and roll. I get 80s rock and roll, hair band, poison, and Def Leppard, like Bon Jovi, living on a prayer, like, the, like really awesome, silly, but fun, like 80s. But then I also get my emo side. I get grunge rock in the 90s where we had Nirvana and Pearl Jam. Like, like that's like, I get that. How many of you are 80s, 90s kids like me? We get rock, we get rock and roll. Unless you live through the 70s, it doesn't get better. Like 70s rock, that's pretty awesome too. You guys get Zeppelin. I mean, you guys get some rock and roll. But I get 80s and 90s rock and roll. And I was so sad this week when my favorite rock band, the Foo Fighters, the drummer died. Y'all saw this, right? And I, I, like, I felt it all day long just saying it right now. It'll come up in my feed on the Google because the Google knows that once you look at something a few times, it's just going to keep coming up. So it'll come up on my feed, and it'll remind me that Taylor Hawkins died. I'm so sad. I'm sad how he died. I'm sad how old he died. But it's just so denial is when we say no. So I heard the news. Somebody told me. I was sitting uh, with some friends of mine at the beach on Sunday night, and they said, did you hear? And I went, what are you talking about? Did I hear what? Did you hear that the drummer for Foo Fighters died? And I went, no, no, that couldn't have happened. Those of you that know rock and roll see the irony in the drummer, Nirvana and Foo Fighters. Like you see the irony in this, and you go, God, no, this didn't happen. So that's part of what denial is, but that's not really how you and I experience it. A lot of times the way you and I experience denial is when we deny permission to ourselves to be human, to be sad, to experience sadness. It's when we say, someone, someone says to you, I'm so sorry to hear about the loss of your fill in the blank, and you say, it's okay. No, it's not okay. We're sad. And sadness is part of the human experience. I don't know if you saw Pixar's Inside Out, but it's one of the five core emotions. You are going to experience a lot of sadness in your life, and to deny yourself the ability to be sad is to deny yourself the ability to be human. So that's denial. Anger, you know what anger is. Anger is just when you're just upset. Anybody ever been anger, angry before because you're in the grieving process? Like just upset and angry and mad, but anger doesn't always just show up with, with fists and punches and screams. For me, when I was angry, anger showed up with, um, with isolating myself, not just from other people, but, but from God, isolating everybody's okay. I know y'all are on the ground going, oh my God, somebody fell out of the ceiling and died. <laughs> like, I, like what just happened up there? I have good news. I have bad news. We had to pause for a second while I was saying important things. I have good news. No one is dead. No, we don't have to grieve. That would be the most ironic thing is if I'm talking about grief and loss and somebody just falls out of the ceiling and dies on the balcony. No one did. They're okay. They limped out, but they're okay. But for me, uh, I, I, I would never say I was angry at God. I would never say that. But I went years of my life walking with Tiffany through, through tragedy and pain where I just was like, I'm just not going to read the Bible. I'm not going to pray. Years. 
And so that sometimes is anger. Bargaining is this idea where we begin to go through this if-then process. Now, this is where I wanted to camp for a second because we see it here with Martha. She looks at Jesus and she says, if you would have just been here sooner, then my brother would not have died. If you would have just done what I've seen you do to hundreds and hundreds of people, I saw you heal hundreds of people. I've seen you... I've seen you um, heal the blind man. I've seen, you, I've seen you look at people that couldn't walk and raise them up and legs grow and arms grow. I've seen you heal the deaf person. I've seen you heal the mute person. I've seen you heal. And if you would have just been here, then you could have healed my brother. And now because you didn't, I'm even questioning, do you even love us? The first point, I want to make three points this morning. The first point is this. It is Jesus doesn't fit the if-then. Jesus doesn't fit inside of the if-then. In your life, this if-then might sound something like this. If Jesus cared, then he would have healed my brother or my mom or my dad or my grandma. They wouldn't be suffering or they wouldn't have died. If you cared, then you would have done this. I was praying for you over the last several weeks, and this person came to mind, and it might only be one person in this room, but I feel like there's a person in this room, maybe two, that has this feeling right now that God is punishing someone that you love because of something that you did or something that you're not doing. And I want you to know that that's not how Jesus works. Jesus isn't an if-then. If you do this, then I will do this. Maybe you say it like this, if God was real, he would do something about all of the hurting in the world. Or you say, if I would have just prayed more, then God would have heard my request. Or maybe you say, if I would just fast more, then I could maybe hear God speak to me more clearly. Tiffany said to me one time, several years into her disease, she said, Jeremy, do you think that God isn't healing me because I'm not doing my devotions? She wasn't doing her devotions because she couldn't read anymore. The disease had stolen her ability to read. And she said, do you think God is punishing me and not healing me because I don't have the ability to do my devotions? Talk about feeling absolute sadness. That's if then. Maybe you say, if I tithe, then God has to bless me. If I serve God's kingdom, then God has to take care of my family. This is the if then, and Jesus doesn't fit the if then. The if then is if I do X, then God has to do Y. In fact, the belief that if I do something, then God has to do something is actually witchcraft. It's the belief that I can stir up this cauldron of prayer or Bible reading or good deeds or things, and then God has to respond to what I do. And it's trying to control what God is supposed to be and is already doing. Martha says, if you would have been here, then my brother would not have died. We have to be so careful in the church to watch out for this transactional type relationship. Sometimes it goes by the idea of holding God to his word. Like we have to hold God to be God. Like we have to remind God to be God. If we're not careful, what happens is prayer becomes about managing outcomes. I only pray in order to get God to do what I want him to do. And that's not what prayer is at all. Prayer is about one, being properly formed. And number two, 
partnering with God in his presence and activity in the world. That's what prayer is about. And when we use prayer to get God to do what we want him to do, we're participating in this idea of if-then. If I do this, then God has to do this. And Jesus doesn't fit the if-then. Continuing to read in verse 23, Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I'm the life. And the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is where the conversation gets really good. Jesus is constantly, like I told you at the beginning, Jesus is having these conversations where he's saying one thing and someone's hearing another. We have a... Um, we have something that goes on inside of us called a cognitive bias, and that is we regularly hear what we already believe, and it's hard for us to hear things that we don't already believe. That's why we are so entrenched in what we hear, and, the, and constantly we have a hard time having good conversations with people because we don't have the ability to listen to each other very well. Our context is, I believe this, and you believe that. You're wrong, and I'm right and we don't listen very well. And so we get entrenched in this context and we just have a hard time having good conversations. I was in, I was a youth pastor in Atmore 20 years ago, Atmore, Alabama. I wanna be very clear, I was a youth pastor there, I was not in prison there. But I was in Atmore, Alabama <laughs> and, uh, and I, was a, uh, I was also serving on the worship team sometimes. Sometimes I would play the piano and we had like this piano pit, this uh, orchestra pit, except it was hive. So why, why we called it the pit, I don't know, but it was up and we were in the pit. So I played there in the orchestra pit with a drummer. His name was Brandon. With a bass player, his name was Jimmy. And me, the piano player, that was our orchestra. And Jimmy was, I love Jimmy. In fact, I, 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 I re-looked him up this week on Facebook to make sure that he was still doing his thing because Jimmy sang in a Southern gospel trio. It was him, his sister, and their friend Bobby. And they were, they were fantastic. They sang the best Southern gospel that you have ever heard. The problem is, I told you earlier, I'm an 80s and 90s rocker, which means there is no good Southern gospel. However, as far as Southern gospel goes, they were really sang good. If Elaine was in the room, she'd kill me, but she's not here. She's probably at some concert with Bill Gaither right now. So, um, <laughs> so I hope she sees this. So, uh, uh, so, so Jimmy would get, Jimmy would sing and they would bring the house down and they would sing, you know, the anchor holds or some brilliant Southern gospel in Christ alone. I mean, it was always so fantastic. And I would try my very best to be like, yes, go God. It was hard, but I mean, I was there. I was like, man, but our church loved it. It was that more. And they would stand on there. We'd get so excited. So one day we're sitting in the orchestra pit. I'm sitting playing the piano. Uh, but, but we have a track, so I'm just, I'm just sitting watching, and Jimmy's beside me on the bass, and we had a guy in our church named Frankie who was singing a song. Frankie wasn't a great singer. What he was good at is picking a good song. That's what you have to do. If you can't sing very well, just pick a great song. And so he picked a great song by the two-thirds of the way through the song, the whole church was standing on their feet and cheering and hooping and hollering. I don't know if you know what that means, but I don't either, but we say it in the app more, and so I've brought it up here to you. Here we go. We were hooping and hollering, and Jimmy is hooping in my ear. Woo! Yes! 
praise God, hallelujah. He's screaming at the top of his lungs. He is so into this song. And Frankie is singing fair, average at best, but the church is loving it and we are worshiping with Frankie. And the song ends and Jimmy's like, woo, yes, praise God. He looks at me and he high fives me. I don't think you're supposed to do that in church, but whatever he high, so I, uh, he just goes, and I go, I, he, he's either going to hit me or I'm going to give him my hand. But one way or another, he's touching me. So I like hit this. I prefer you hit this and not this. Will Smith style, I want to go this way right here. So <laughs> too soon. The Google didn't think it was too soon. I had articles about it immediately following. But the Google's fast. So Jimmy high fives me and he goes, woo! That is as good as it gets right there. I don't agree, but I was like, it was good for that. I mean, for, for that, it was good. For Atmore, Southern Gospel, Frankie, good. And he goes, I'm just going to tell you right now, that's what we're going to sing in heaven. And I go, <laughs> yeah, sure. Bad news, you will not have the last word in this story. So I say, so I say, I don't know why it stops me in my, I don't do this anymore. I'm not a provoker. I'm not a provocateur I'd, at all, ever. But I just think to myself, wait a minute. Did I just hear him say, that's what we're going to sing in heaven? So I say to Jimmy, did I just hear you say, that's what we're going to sing in heaven? He goes, absolutely. What else would we sing? And I say, Jimmy, I, just to be clear, he's still hooping and hollering. Just to be clear, are you saying we're going to sing Southern gospel in heaven? Like we're going to cast our crowns at Jesus' feet and we're going to join with millions of angels that have been singing for eternity and they're just waiting for us to hit the jukebox and turn on Southern gospel? Like that's what we're doing up here? And he goes, well, yes, nothing moves people like that. And I say, Jimmy. Are you telling me we're going to force like Russians and Africans and Hispanics and Japanese to sing Southern gospel around the throne? And he goes, well, yeah. <laughs> and I had nothing else to say. I don't know how to argue with that. I don't know how to argue with you. I don't know what to say. I just can't imagine that the angels are seeing the anchor holds in heaven. I just don't see it. But that's what being stuck in a context does for us. We have a hard time seeing outside of our context. And Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, because her context is... I believe that one day we're going to rise again. Martha says, yes, of course. I know that he's going to rise again at the resurrection. To which Jesus says, I am the resurrection. He's trying to change the way that you think about God. My second point is this. God is God because he is God, not because he acts like God. Okay, I want to break this down. God is God because he's God, not because he acts like God. 
And when I say he acts like God, what I want to tell you is one of the hardest things for me as a Christian for my entire 45, I'm 45 years old, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember, I follow Jesus. One of the hardest things that's, that has been for me to learn is that I often create an image of God and say, God, you have to act this way. You have to be this way. You have to respond this way. And when you don't act like this, then I get frustrated at God. Do you understand what I'm saying? We often create an image of God that says, God, you have to act like this or else I am frustrated at you being God. And what I want to tell you is walking through some of the most difficult years of my life, not some of, walking through the most difficult years of my life, I had to make a leap of faith. Faith is going to require every one of us to make a step beyond what is easy to believe. There is no way around it. I've talked to so many people who said, I just can't believe in a God who. Often I will say, tell me about this God you can't believe in because it's, po- it's possible that I might not believe in that God either. But sometimes someone will say, I just can't believe in a God who will do this. And what I want to tell you is when I made my leap of faith, I decided I'm not going to take a leap of faith to believe that God will act the way that I think he should act. I'm going to believe in a God who has shown me what his character and his nature are through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is God because he's God, not because he acts some way that you and I think that he should act. When you and I put faith in the action of God and in the activity of God and in the response of God, we are often going to be extremely frustrated when God doesn't act the way that we think that he should act. If I think that God is faithful and I define faithfulness by God always giving me the things that I need and the things that I want and never never allowing me to go through deep pain, and when I go through deep pain, then apparently I don't think God's faithful anymore. And we're going to be frustrated by that God. And Jesus is trying to, to say something to Martha. He's trying to tell her, I don't put your faith in what I can do. Put your faith in who I am. And you and I are being invited not to follow a Jesus who raises us, who resurrects us. You and I are being invited to follow the resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection. And he is living in you and around you and through you and resurrecting you at every moment of your life. This is the the same power that spoke creation into existence from nothing. The same power that holds the world together. The same power that continues to move and create and, 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 and hold us is the power of resurrection. The same power that speaks life is the same power that resurrects life. And we are being being resurrected. And the third and last thought is this. I want to read verse 28 first. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping. This word weeping, by the way, 
Uh, we're going to see Jesus weep in a moment. It's a very different word. This word weeping is wailing. It's screaming. It's not the type of, of weeping you and I do anymore when we lose someone. This is a type of weeping that has consisted in so many cultures. But she's wailing. She's weeping. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, same word, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. These are really interesting Greek words. One of them is he was, this deeply moved idea is typically associated with a horse. When a horse is um, well, frustrated or angry or mad and it goes, that, that idea. So it's that, that's the thought. And then troubled, the word there really is angry. Jesus was troubled and he was angry. He was deeply moved and he was angry. Well, what's he angry at? He's not angry at Mary and Martha. They're grieving. But he's angry that death thinks it gets the final word. He's angry that you and I have to fear death and disease and sadness because that is not the world in which Jesus created. It's not the world that he first spoke into existence, and it is not the world that you and I will live in forever. And he's angry that this is what the people that he loves has to go through. And then we see one of the most beautiful scriptures. It says in 34, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come along with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then it says, Jesus wept. My last point is this. Jesus sees, he hears, he feels, he holds, and he joins us in our pain. I walked through deep sadness, deep pain. I walked through days that were so hard. By the way, there are days that are still hard. Three kids that miss their mom. And that shows up in every way imaginable you can think of. And I remember saying to Jesus, just do something. Just do something. Change this. Heal her. Fix this. Do something. And it would be, when it became obvious that, he, that it just wasn't going to do anything, I was like, well, what do I do? What do I, what do I relate to? What do I respond to? And it was this verse that God gave me. It was this idea that Jesus weeps with me, that Jesus steps into our pain and he's with us and he's close. There's not a moment that you and I can go through that Jesus isn't with us sharing the burden of our pain. That's what Jesus weeps shows us. That's what the cross shows us. If you think that the cross is only for Jesus forgiving sins, you're missing so many dynamics of what the cross is about. The cross is also about Jesus allowing himself to become susceptible to death just the way you and I are susceptible to death. Standing in solidarity with humanity to say, this is how you live, this is how you die, this is how you are raised again to life. And you and I are called to follow the Christ who has died, the Christ who has risen, and the Christ will come again. Today, 
before our team comes out and sings a song about Jesus being the firm foundation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have an altar call at the end of the service, but I've been praying for two very specific people this morning and I wanna tell you that because I want you to be thinking about it when we come back. The first one is this, the person that's in the room that God hasn't acted like you wanted him to. God isn't acting like you want him to. God isn't doing what you think he should do. God isn't acting like you think he should act. God isn't fixing things the way you think he should fix. You might have chosen to be angry at him. You might have chosen to cold shoulder him. Either way, you feel a million miles away from God and you wouldn't mind to be a little bit further away. Can I tell you, you're not alone. I'd like to give you two ways to respond. One, Maybe you're in this room and I just want to give you permission. Maybe you're online this morning. I want to give you permission. You don't have to do a thing. God hasn't left you. Not the real God. He's with you. Weeping with you. And maybe, maybe you could open your heart this morning to a Jesus who weeps. Not a Jesus who fixes everything. Maybe secondly, you want to give God another chance. You don't have to feel guilty about what you've said, about what you've done, about what, what you, how you've responded. Don't feel guilty about any of that. Jesus doesn't deal in guilt. He deals in grace. And it might be time for you to make your way back to Jesus. The second person is this. I want to invite you into a relationship with an unpredictable, wild, adventurous, and transcendent God. You've been serving a tame understandable, in-the-box kind of God. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy looks at Mr. Beaver, and she's asking about Aslan, who is this analogy of Jesus. And in the book, Aslan is a lion. And Lucy says to Mr. Beaver, if I'm going to meet him, is he, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, who said anything about safe? No. He's not safe, but he's good. And I wanna invite you to an adventure to experience all that Jesus has to offer. And it's not safe. It will not be all easy peasy. It will not be all good times. In fact, Jesus himself says to you in this life, you will have troubles and trials and then models it for you by going to the cross. You're not being invited into the adventure of, of clouds and blessings. You're being invited into the life of Jesus. And the life of Jesus is ups and downs and trials and valleys and mountains. And it's, it's a beautiful mess. But I invite you into it this morning. So this morning as we sing about the firm foundation, I'm going to come back out in a second and invite you to respond whether you're online or you're in the room just a few moments. But will you stand with me this morning?
commit to following the life of Jesus, we're renewed to live with you and through you and be used as hands for your work. God, this is an invitation.